I had planned uh, to give a speech. I wrote it. I practiced it. I edited it. I rehearsed it. I was ready to go. And then I learned about the soccer exception to Saturday morning. <laughs> I need to save my voice for the two o'clock soccer match. <laughs> and Eliza, it turns out you're Rav Hazan. So if you could just whip up a quick sermon in addition to Musaf. And the U.S. is playing, I don't know, I need my voice. Anyway, uh, I read Elizabeth Strout's most recent book, which is called Lucy by the Sea. And in that book, the central protagonist, Lucy Barton, goes through life with a single question in her mind whenever she has an encounter with another human being. What is it like to be you? Can you imagine kind of channeling that question whenever you're with other people? Kind of a radical empathy question. What is it like to be you? And that question has made me think very deeply about the inner lives of two people I don't know, two lives of people I've never met, but I have been thinking a lot about them and what it must be like to be them. The first is a person named Joseph Bankman. Joseph Bankman is a professor of law at Stanford Law School. He is the Ralph M. Parsons Professor of Law and Business at Stanford Law School. And Joseph Bankman is a recognized authority on federal income taxation. He has authored a number of books, including case books that are used throughout law schools that bear exciting titles like federal income taxation. <laughs> but he's not just a tax nerd. He himself is a deeply caring and empathetic person. In fact, in the midst of his Stanford law career, he goes out and gets a degree in clinical psychology, not to become a psychologist, but he gets a degree in clinical psychology so that he can better listen to and empathize with law students who are going through anxiety. He wants, he's concerned about the mental health of his students. And in fact, he gets his degree in clinical psychology and he starts a podcast called Wellness Cast. And he's explicit talking to Stanford law students about their inner lives, their demons, mental health, mental illness, and how people can be more supportive. That's Joseph Bankman. I've been thinking, what is it like to be him? The other person that I've been thinking about a lot with this Lucy Barton question is his wife named Barbara Freed. Barbara Freed is also a professor of law at Stanford. She is the William W. and Gertrude H. Sanders Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. And Barbara Freed's academic specialty is distributive justice. That means she asks the question, 
How are the goods and services in our society allocated? And are they allocated fairly? And in order to answer that, she has to know all these other disciplines like tax law, real estate law, property law, etc., trusts and estates. But in addition, she's just also recognized as one of the best teachers at Stanford Law School. Stanford has an award that is voted on by the students of Stanford Law, best teacher, and Barbara Freed has won this three times, an unprecedented amount. So Joe Bankman, Barbara Freed, are both brilliant scholars. They have both written major works in their field, and they're both recognized as being excellent teachers and professors. But above and beyond all that, they're recognized as being mensches, that they really care about their students. So a woman named Anna Tong is a journalist, and she wrote a piece about Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed, which was published in the San Francisco Standard. And this is what Anna Tong says, having interviewed a bunch of Stanford Law students. Former students said that both cared deeply about students, more so than any other professors. Freed invited students to, he to her home and spent time outside class talking with them about dealing with law school pressure. A student of Bankman said he was a big softy. So Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed have two sons named Sam and Gabe. And they would tend to have conversations around the dinner table around heady subjects, including a subject that was very deeply entrenched in their family culture, what they would call utilitarianism. So utilitarianism, as I have learned up on it from following the story, is the doctrine that says that the most ethical way to roll through life is to regard every human being in every country, on every continent, whatever race, color, creed, every human is equally deserving of happiness. And therefore, the most ethical thing that you can do is to figure out how to maximize the happiness for as many people as possible. And that was what they talked about over the dinner table. And in 2020, Barbara Freed writes a book about scarcity and about the challenges to people's happiness called Facing Up to Scarcity. And she dedicates it to her husband, and she specifically dedicates it to her sons, Sam Bankman Freed and Gabe Bankman-Fried. And she writes, both Sam and Gabe have become take-no-prisoners utilitarians, joining their father in that hearty band. In countless discussions around the kitchen table, literally and figuratively, they have shown me by example the nobility of the ethical principle at the heart of utilitarianism a commitment to the well-being of all people and to counting each person, alive now or in the future, halfway around the world or next door, known or unknown to us as one. 
In other words, Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed are brilliant, they're caring, they're idealistic, and they transmitted their idealism to their sons, Sam and Gabe Bankman Freed. Now roll the film forward. Sam becomes a titan of this emerging field of finance cryptocurrency. And he becomes the founder and the president of a cryptocurrency company called FTX. And he amasses a personal fortune that is $16 billion. And as he's earning all this money, he's saying he's doing it for reasons of what he calls effective altruism, I'm earning all these millions so that I can give it away. And meanwhile, Sam Bankman-Fried cultivates this very studied and very intentional persona. So he only wears T-shirts and schleppy T-shirts. This is not like the Steve Jobs black tight-fitting T-shirt. These are deliberately schleppy t-shirts. If you're going to be cleaning your attic on a Sunday in January, that's the t-shirt he wears all the time. He wears shorts that are deliberately schleppy. He wears tube socks that are deliberately unhip and uncool. And he famously has a mop of hair that he famously never combs. So he's got uncombed mop of hair, schleppy t-shirt, schleppy shorts, schleppy tube socks, and then the following choreography, which is well rehearsed. Let's say FTX is courting a potential investor. Let's say the Ontario Teachers Union, which made a huge investment in FTX. He would be sleeping on a beanbag in his office, or fake sleeping. And the investors would come with their suit and their tie, looking ticked and tied. And he's wearing the t-shirt and the whole look and the shorts. And he's sleeping or fake sleeping. And the person would escort them in. And then Sam Bankman-Fried would wake up, or would appear to wake up and he would snap into brilliant action, and it worked. He charmed untold numbers of investors into investing untold billions of dollars into FTX. He charmed leaders of Congress from both parties he charmed A-listers like Tom Brady and David Ortiz. What do they know from cryptocurrency? But they are on record saying cryptocurrency is the way to go. He charmed, I heard this myself on a daily about Sam Bankman-Fried, he charmed Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton says, Sam Bankman-Fried has got it going on. Congress needs to pass laws that are favorable to his company. And of course, as you all know, it all unraveled spectacularly and quickly. FTX declared bankruptcy. 
Sam Bankman-Fried's personal fortune went from $16 billion to zero overnight, and the court, the bankruptcy court, brought in somebody to oversee the end of the business. And the guy they brought in had overseen the end of Enron. And the guy they brought in who oversaw the end of Enron said that in my life, I've never seen such a hot mess as FTX. Lack of accounting, lack of accountability, lack of transparency, lack of discipline. All those billions of dollars, like the Ontario Teachers Union, gone. And all those creditors who believed in Sam Bankman Freed and bought his act, the disheveled hair, the disheveled nerd with the heart of gold, gone, gone, gone. And who knows what, if anything, will be recovered. And oh, by the way, when earning his 16 billions of dollars, he talked about effective vouchers, want to give this money away. It's all about making the world a better place. And once it all crumbled so spectacularly, he ridiculed the idealism that he had used to sell the company. And he ridiculed the idealism that his parents embodied and transmitted. So he is asked by a reporter named Kelsey Piper from Vox, you always talked about ethics, 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 ethics. But what happened to FTX doesn't sound so ethical. Whatever happened to all that ethics talk? And he writes, I had to talk about ethics. It's what reputations are made of to some extent. I feel bad for those who got hurt by it. He doesn't use the word hurt. He uses a different word that I can't say on the BIMA. I feel bad for those who got hurt by it, by this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths so that everyone likes us. Such deep cynicism from a son who comes from deeply idealistic parents. They enjoy a keter shem tov, the crown of a good name, and their son is disgraced and also vulnerable to criminal prosecution. His parents are disciplined and ethical, but their son is undisciplined and unethical. Parents genuinely tried to make the world better, and the son courted and squandered and wasted and lost the life savings of billions of dollars. How do these careful and compassionate parents understand what happened to their cynical and careless son. Now, in some sense, this is very unique and sui generis to Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed and Sam Bankman Freed. The particulars are public, and they're horrendous, and they're florid, and they're ghastly, and there's legal consequences, and it's sui generis. But in another level, I think many parents 
of adult children can relate to this basic pathos of what it must be like to be Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed in our own less horrific, less florid, less public, less legally consequential ways, we all grapple with the same conundrum, which is our adult children have minds of their own, our adult children have lives of their own, and our adult children make decisions that we do not necessarily agree with. Two ways to put this phenomenon. One is the famous bowling analogy, which is that raising kids and bringing them into adulthood is like bowling. Once you let go of the bowling ball, and once you let go of your kids and they leave your home at 18, you can be behind the line and you can move your butt around and you can go like this and you can plead and you can pray and you can beg and you can urge and you can move and you can dance, but you can't move the bowling ball. Once the bowling ball leaves your hand, it's out of your hand, that bowling ball has a mind of its own and our adult kids properly have a mind of their own. And the way that this truth has best been expressed in a single sentence, this has to be the best opening of any book ever. It's written by Andrew Solomon, who wrote a book called Far From the Tree. And it's about how parents and children are very different from one another. And the first sentence of Far From a Tree is, there is no such thing as reproduction, only production. There is no such thing as reproduction, only production. So what happens when you are a parent, you're Joe Bankman, and you're Barbara Freed, and you've been talking about utilitarianism, and you've gotten a PhD in, in clinical psychology so you can be a better listener, and you've invited law students to your house, and you start a podcast on wellness, and you're all about doing good in the world, and you send that bowling ball into the world, and you just can't wait, and you're just praying, and you're pleading, and you're shaking your butt around, and you get the bankruptcy of FTX, and the possible criminal exposure of your son who bears your name. What is it like to be Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed with all this happening to Sam Bankman Freed? Now, I found some Torah that was sent to me for unrelated reasons by my friend Paul Greenberg. And he sent me this text from uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs. And Rabbi Sachs, may he rest in peace, is interpreting a curious line from the Torah, which is that Isaac loves Esau. So this is Rabbi Sachs on Isaac loves Esau. Why did Isaac love Esau despite everything? his wildness, his mutability, and his outmarriages. Isaac loved Esau because Esau was his son, and that is what parents do. They love their children unconditionally. That does not mean that Isaac could not see the faults in Esau's character. 
It does not imply that he thought Esau the right person to continue the covenant. Nor does it mean that he was not pained when Esau married Hittite women. The text explicitly says he was. But it does mean that Isaac knew that a father must love his son because he is his son. That is not incompatible with being critical of what he does, but a parent does not disown their child even when the child disappoints their expectations. Isaac was teaching us a fundamental lesson in parenthood. In other words, Isaac says, my son, my son Esau, I will just always love my son Esau no matter what. My heart will always belong to my son Esau. If Esau learns to hunt, I'll learn to love steak. And this Torah of Rabbi Sachs on Isaac and Esau applies to Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed and applies to all of us as we sort out what happens in the unfolding lives of our adult children. What is it like to be Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed now? So first, I think it must be a time when they ask themselves questions that parents ask in different kinds of circumstances, like this, like, what did we miss? Should we have done something different? What, what did we do wrong? What could we have done that would have made a difference? And I hope, I've never talked to them, but I hope that when they ask those questions the parents ask, that they answer themselves the following way. Our adult son is just that, an adult. He made his own decisions. He made his own mistakes. He is living his own life. There is no such thing as reproduction, only production. And what it must mean to be them is also to never give up on him because parents never give up on their children. Isaac never gave up on Esau. But I think Esau teaches us one more thing. Not only that Isaac never gives up on Esau, parents never give up on our children, but that we never give up on hope. Because the story is not over. And the last chapter is not written. And there is always time for our children, adult children, to get it together and to figure it out and to write a different story. And that, in fact, is what happens with Esau. Isaac loved Esau when Esau was younger because Esau was Isaac's son. But 20 years later, Esau is different. He's evolved, he's grown, he's changed. And in next week's Parsha, when Esau reunites with Jacob, he runs to Jacob, he hugs Jacob, he kisses Jacob, he makes up with Jacob. He says, Jacob, come back to my place and let's, let's press reset. Let's figure out how to be brothers after all these years. In other words, there is a redemption story waiting to be written for every one of us. And what's true of Esau is true of us. It's true of our adult children. It is even true of Sam Bankman-Fried, 
once he pays the price for his misdeeds. And that is that we're all entitled to evolve and grow and change. And so what does it mean to be like Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed? It means to always hold on to hope that the redemption story is just waiting to be written. Shabbat Shalom.